All right, welcome to Therapize Podcast. We have a very special guest here today, Megan O'Neill. Uh, Megan and I went to grad school together and we are reconnecting, so I'll give her a chance to go ahead and introduce herself. All right, yeah, thanks. I'm super excited to talk to you, so this is really cool. Um, yeah, so I'm Megan O'Neill, LMFT. Um, I was originally licensed in California and then moved to Tennessee, so that's where I am now. Um, and uh, let's see, yeah, so I work with a range of ages. I actually work with toddlers all the way up through adulthood um, for different reasons um, and with different modalities for those, those reasons. So um, I work with kids with uh, developmental disabilities or you know, things like autism or just general uh, behavior issues that parents are struggling with. And uh, I also work with children and adults who are grieving. And um, the other thing that I help people with, usually teenagers and adults, um, is just sort of existential issues that come up as a result of being a human in a very complicated world. Absolutely. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for being here. Uh, I definitely want to start with the grief work because I remember from, uh, meeting you back in grad school. I remember the grief and the behavioral uh, therapy background were like two things you really came in with into the program and that I remember I can't speak for everyone in the program but I felt like we all learned a lot from from you and specifically about those two um, those two facets Sandy was on here maybe a year ago I don't know how long ago but she started doing grief work and it was very specific so hers was related to um, was families that lost uh, a family member to murder to violence right so like those that was literally the window um, so it was a very specific uh client like you know referral that was happening so and she kind of talked about her experience with it and how she uh, approached the, her grief work with those families but i'm curious with you is like what does it look like right is because from my understanding grief is can be very complicated what we are actually grieving um, so yeah, in your current work, what do you, what are some of the theme, themes that come up for you in terms of what the family is grieving? Is it a family member? Is it something else? Is it like, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and kind of jump on in on that one then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I definitely see, um, like really getting specific and grief can be helpful. Um, I do think the, the type of loss affects the way that grief is expressed. Um, but for me, I kind of see like a, a range um, of different types of grief. One of my specialties is uh, kids who have lost a parent or mm -hmm. have a parent who is actually um, chronically or terminally ill. Mm -hmm. um, so there's anticipatory grief that's in that. Um, and, uh, but as far as just general grief, I feel like I can see people for a lot of different types of grief. Um, so I see people for sudden loss, um, for uh, loss to suicide, um, you know, different things like that. Um, and uh, I do tailor my approach to, to the loss that they're experiencing um, because some of it does involve more of a trauma focus or, um, you know, more of just a, a general walking through what to expect with grief, because especially if somebody has never lost someone before, you don't really know what is normal right. and um, all of the twists and turns that can come up with grief. Um, I think that catches people off guard is uh, there's still that idea that there's some sort of linear progression. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, one, one of the first things I like to do is I have a, a, a worksheet that I give people that sort of shows that some of the different points of grief. So like moving from like disbelief mm -hmm. over to, you know, kind of for lack of a better term, acceptance. Um, right. I like to use the word integration um, yeah. rather than acceptance, um, just because I feel like it fits better and mm -hmm. acceptance feels really final. I was like, going to say that word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say final. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so I feel like that is its own 
process. Um, but the, the handout basically just shows like squiggly lines that kind of double back and forth and all that because um, that's something that a lot of people find unexpected is how much they move back and forth between certain states or emotions or thoughts mm -hmm. that you know, I thought I, I thought I was done with being angry about that, you know, and I'm like, well, it's going to pop up. It just yeah. does, you know, and, and so, so just kind of normalizing some of that stuff for people has, you know, regardless of, of the loss um, goes a long way, I feel. Yeah. I think that's a, such a good point. Um, with, with grief of not being linear, I know we talk like that's a common thread of I think in grief work, I've done a little bit. I said I didn't do any, but actually I was like, okay, it comes up. Um, but sometimes there's this like assumption that I'm going to get over this, right? And I'm like mm -hmm. moving away from that. And it sounds like that's where the integration piece comes. It's like, you're not necessarily getting over this. It's just, it's now a part of your life. And all of these emotions are now going to be a part of your life, maybe in different ways, maybe at different times. No one's really going to know when they'll come. I mean, you mm -hmm. may get better at recognizing them, I suppose. Um, so it almost sounds like, well, you already actually stated it was preparing them for what that experience could be like. So they're not like kind of taken back by, by the, the big waves that can, they can experience because of the grief. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you mentioned a couple of those stages like integration and also like the uh, disbelief. Uh, what are some of the other stages you're helping these clients recognize that might come up for them or stages of emotions or whatnot? Uh, yeah, I think some of it is, is probably what a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, you know, there, there is anger there, there is a kind of, you know, bargaining that might go on like the, the sort of famous, you know, Kubler-Ross kind mm -hmm. of language. Um, but um, also just, working through that, um, you know, general meaning making, because you do have to kind of reconstruct where you fit in the world um, when there's been a loss, especially if it's a family member, mm -hmm. um, but even within a, a friend group or something like that, that um, that changes how, like where you are in relation to other people and mm. the stage of life that you're in. So a lot of our identity is shaped by our relationships. And so um, for, for me, like I had to, uh, when my mom died, I kind of had to reevaluate what it meant to be a daughter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was part of my identity. And so, okay, well, what does that mean if I don't have a mom? You know, mm -hmm. am I still a daughter? Is she still considered a mother? like stuff like that, that people go through those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, especially in spousal loss, mm -hmm. that can be really big because when you, especially when you're with somebody long-term, I mean, your whole identity shifts. You're, you're sort of this unit mm -hmm. um, and uh, that, you know, your, your friendships change because of who your spouse is and, and the things that you do together and what you do with your friends and um, all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, even if things uh, don't go well, like say you were divorced and your ex-spouse dies, I mean, that still, that brings up all kinds of complications too. And For sure. and the language that you use, like, how do you refer to that person now? How do you like, people aren't sure if they're, if it's okay to have certain feelings based on certain relationships and it's, it's very tricky. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think too, that there's, there's so much beyond the initial pain of grief. Um, and going, sorry, going back to like that timeline thing of like all of the relationship aspects are involved. Like how did this person respond to it? What do I, how do I make a meaning of that person respond to it? Does that change how I relate to that person now? Cause that, that, that person's response in my family isn't what I expected it, that it should be or what it should look like. Um, or re reflecting upon all of the what ifs, you know, mm -hmm. and what if that person was still around or you, you go five years later and then you're grieving maybe not the initial pain, but the pain of the absence at that important event. 
or Mm -hmm. the absence of not being able to ask a certain question that maybe you trusted that person and like you maybe can't predict all those little things that'll come up but they do they I mean almost feels inevitably that they will come up because depending on the level of the relationship uh yeah um so with that I wanted to go to the to to ask you about integration of like can you help define that for the listeners and like what what that phase can kind of look like I mean I know it'll be very tricky because it always depends on the client but if you have any like somewhat examples of what integration would would be for for a person yeah yeah and it is a it is kind of a big idea um and and you're right it does differ person to person loss to loss um and i would say that that when someone is at a point of integrating some of the signs that they might notice uh would be you know they're they're able to share certain memories or um stories uh either with themselves or to other people um, without sort of the, the wave knocking them back of, Mm -hmm. you know, like I can't even get the words out because it's so hard. So, um, so that's one thing that I I think a lot of people note for themselves as a big deal of, oh, I'm actually able to talk about that person who died, Mm -hmm. um, without getting completely floored. Um, and, the other part of integration too, and I, I think of this kind of, um, uh, I was going to say developmentally, um, but I think just recognizing that uh, things are going to come up that are going to be difficult. So getting to a point where you're kind of okay with that, I would say is, is a type of integration too, that, you know what, my loss is going to hit me every once in a while. It's going to, I'm going to have those really tough moments um, that feel like they're catching me off guard because, you know, this random thing reminded me of them or there's a special date coming up um, or, you know, even honestly, like um, smell is a big one. That I think is really off-putting to people that are, olfactory sense is so strong and so deeply rooted that certain smells can can really trigger some stuff for sure um and so getting to a point where you know that's part of the process Mm -hmm. and and you're more or less okay with that and and being okay with you know having your grief show up and sort of um saying okay there it is today is a tough day or i'm having a tough minute right now and I'm okay with that because that's my grief. Yeah. Um, so, so I, for, for me, that's a, that's a type of integration um, and, and kind of acknowledgement that you're, you might be in that area. I love that point so much because for me, it gives me a word to use, I think now, because, you know, before we started, I was like, I, have, I haven't really done any grief work. And then as we're talking, I'm thinking of all these clients, I'm like, I was doing grief work. I'm, what am I talking about? And that really helps me even listening to it, hopefully to the listeners, because that word specifically um, as you were talking, I was in my mind where I took integration was where you eventually said was the being okay with it, right? Being okay with how I respond to it versus a, throwing a judgment at yourself for responding that way. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, I'm gonna make assumption and probably say you've seen that a lot. I know I've seen them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think broadly, right? If I, if I even move out of grief work for a second, my therapeutic work and I think a, a, a lot of our therapeutic work just in general as therapists is to have people be okay with how they feel right mm-hmm. instead of having a judgment when feelings come up just going right I feel this I, I'm experiencing this um, so I really love that idea of integration and it's like integrating the grief into our life instead of trying to shut it away and you know kind of muscle it down but <laughs> get down mm-hmm. there right I'm not gonna cry right now kind of stuff and being like if you need to go ahead, it's okay. Like, yeah, if you feel it's okay, it's okay. Right. You can cry. You can do that. It's like, how do you want to integrate this into your life? Cause it is a part of your life, whether mm-hmm. you want to pretend it is or not. And as you just said that, I really just thought about uh, a session from last week of how uh, this client I was working with had 
out of nowhere, I'd gotten reminded like of years of grief from a friend. And then we kind of talked through that session of how to integrate grief into his life. And I, I think that word is just so fitting for it because, because it shows that you're no longer denying your experience to exist. Right? Mm-hmm. You're like honoring, um, I think even in a sense, honoring your relationship to that person in that moment where you integrate it and honoring what it meant to you even. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 I think, I think getting to the point where, yeah, you're not beating yourself up anymore um, for, for grieving when you need to. And, and I was thinking, even as you were saying, you know, like not trying to like shove it down. Um, one of the things I also try to, to, to balance out with, with my clients is there are going to be moments where you do have to right. quiet that down, where you do need to hold those tears back or you need to, you know, like check that rage that might be popping up, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, we, we do, that's part of the integration too, is that we still have to move through life. For sure. right? That's, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that is kind of an affront to grief is that the world still keeps turning. Yep. Um, and, and there is a point where, you know, we all have to kind of get back into the swing of things, but that grief doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. But there, but there is, you know, there's a time and a place to, to say, you know, okay, this expression of my grief doesn't belong to everybody who's present. Mm-hmm. I do need to keep that for myself or for, for the people who I can share that with. Right. So there is like this very strange uh, monitoring and balancing that does have to show up at some point. For sure. Um, I would say like in, in the initial, you know, you, you got to go with the flow with it right. because it kind of has its own agenda anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to do its own thing, whether you want it to or not. But then there is sort of a, a phase that you can kind of get a handle on it and you can make those deci- decisions of, okay. I do need to tamp it down a little over here. I'm going to save it for later or whatever it is, you know, not Mm -hmm. like dismiss it and not avoid it, but that kind of tucking it away. Okay. I'm, I need to hold it together for a few minutes over here. I'm going to save that for later tonight or when I have a minute by myself or when I can call that special person and just let it out to them or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I think that's such an excellent point as well, because I talked about this similar theme. It wasn't related to grief, but, the idea of holding something doesn't always mean you're bottling it up or shoving, like kind of shoving down because just the act of being able to see it and make that conscious decision of what you want to do with your experience of grief in that moment is you creating the space for it still. Right. I'm saying, mm-hmm. Oh, I see you there. And now I'm going to make the active choice of um, what I want to, what I want to do with it right now. Is this the space for me to go through all of that? Or like you said, can I call someone later? So I was talking about this also last week, uh, not in relation to grief, but just in, in relation to conflict. But like something came up and does it mean I'm just bottling it up? It's like, no, it sounds like you're saving it for later. Mm-hmm. I think the bottling up is when you don't even look at it and you just shove it in that bottle and you, and you go, I'm, you're not there. It's like, it is there. So that acknowledging of it is important because I think right. then it gives you the choice and the autonomy of how you want to respond to it. The tough thing when we bottle it up, and I think whether it be grief or other issues, is we bottle it up and we don't look at the bottle and eventually that bottle gets full and blows up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. For so many things. Yeah. Right. So I think that's a good, um, an excellent point you made there of differentiating the two. Uh, it's, it, to be able to integrate is to, be able, is to first be able to acknowledge in, that grief is existing in your life. And then your choices in that moment, how you want to integrate it in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're in a therapy session, maybe the integration is, I'm going to freaking ball my eyes out, you know, but maybe if you're at a work meeting, you go, okay, acknowledge the grief's there. I'm going to go home and make this conscious effort to how I want to process their process this current experience or kind of go through it once I'm in the right environment for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like it's kind of, you know, being able to, to kind of get your arms around the whole, the whole process. Yeah. yeah. What I'm so curious about for you, uh, 
so when I think of myself with doing grief work, I feel like it's, it's kind of come in and out. It's never been like a focal point. It's, it's been more like they came there for something else and then that kind of works its way in and out. Um, but when someone's kind of seeing you specifically for grief, right, for maybe a specific loss, I'm so curious about like what it's like for you as the therapist to hold that because that is when I talked to Sandy about it too, it was like, you're holding something incredibly heavy because I mean, it, it feels really heavy because of the finality of death. Right. And like, you know, if I'm seeing someone for anxiety, it's like, and they're like, oh, I'm really struggling taking a test you know, just the intensity that isn't very high, right? It's the consequence of them not passing that test. It does, you know, it just, it's, it, it moves on, time goes on and they, there'll be many other tests. But the finality of that, the relationship as it once was, it just, I don't know, it feels different uh, thinking about it or holding it. Um, so yeah, anyways, what I'm curious about, what is it like for you uh, creating that space? What's the impact for you creating that space? What are things you have to do before or after? Like, do you have your own process of creating that space for people? Yeah, I mean, it is it is big, um, and it does depend on on the the type of loss. Um, I think sometimes the length of time between when somebody comes to see me and when the loss happened can also affect it. Mm. Um, I definitely think there there is a time where it's too soon to come mm. in for grief specific counseling. Mm -hmm. um, I usually try to tell people, you know, they said, you know, so-and-so died last week. Um, I actually tell them to, you know, maybe wait and, and see how, how their grief shows up and what the loss is doing mm -hmm. to their life um, before figuring out, if and how they need help with that mm -hmm. um because for for i would say even often for the first month you don't even really know what's what's going on you know you don't right. know how um how you're grieving or or how it's affecting any part you know part of your life um so with that said when somebody does come in to see me and, and it is specifically for for a loss um i i do take it very seriously um, and I will often just sort of verbalize that too of, yeah, this is a big deal. This is a life-changing event for you and everything is different now. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't really mince words about it because, um, because of how true that is. Right. I mean, there's, it's nothing is going to be the same. Um, and that means different things for different people. Um, and I know it sounds scary in a way. Um, and at some point it is, um, but it's also, again, it's just true. Right. Um, and so I want people to know that so that they can work from that, that like, okay, this is my life now. Um, and cause if we're, if we're not there, then that affects how we move through the grief. And that's not saying everybody just comes in accepting, right? right. Like that. Okay. This is my life and I'm here to work on this. Um, there is a process of kind of getting to that, but mm -hmm. Um, part of that process is on my end where I just name it and I say it and I am just there with them, you know, to process what that sounds like. Um, and even for them to say something like that out loud, like my life is never going to be the same. I, I can't believe it's happened or what am I going to do now? You know, here, like just being there, um, for them to hear their own words or to hear right. me reflect it back. Um, and, um, yeah, as far as on, on my end, like, what do I do to kind of, uh, prepare myself or take care of myself? Um, I, I have really structured my life, uh, a little bit more. Um, I find a lot of comfort in having certain things, just part of my, my daily routines, weekly routines, stuff like that. Like I found that because the, the nature of the work that I do is so fluid, mm -hmm. um, and abstract at times and uh, not necessarily resolvable um, that 
because so much of that is just kind of up here. I have to like consciously provide anchors for myself. Right. Um, and I, I recommend people do that like, for my clients, like to, to find those anchor points too, because when they're in grief, it does, it, it feels very much like everything is just weird and, mm-hmm. um, unfamiliar. And so, um, yeah, so, so that's also just part of my personal process is I, I have morning routines, I have evening routines, I have uh, certain things that I just do on a weekly basis, like every Friday I do whatever, or, um, you know, stuff like that, that just provides me uh, some, some containment, some predictability, just all that stuff uh, is really, yeah, really grounding for me. So. Yeah, that, it makes so much sense. I think as therapists, we, we have to build in our own routines and rituals um, because when we step into that session, we don't know where it can go and what we're, hold, we're holding, but those routines and rituals become, like you said, our anchor points, our way to ground ourselves, but our sense of also predictability in our lives and, and, and consistency. And, and that is important, absolutely, to like the human experience. If not, if like when you kind of just wake up and go like, I'm going to float away with my emotions today, right? It's like, we don't create those routines and rituals. Like we don't know how different waves can hit us. No, I really, I really do think that's important. Um, And that idea too, and I think Sandy brought this up when we talked about grief uh, uh, some time back in an old episode was also the, it not being solvable, you know, it's, it's, so you're just creating a space to hold things. Um, Whereas in other therapy, which maybe this is a good segue into it and not saying necessarily solvable, but like behavior therapy, a much different process that you're also working with people on that can provide like more tangible outcomes. Um, so maybe we won't stay on behavior therapy too long, but you also do provide it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I do have some questions because I provide a lot of it too. And where I'm at, where I've been at with this, and I'm curious if you're, you're seeing these themes or you work on different themes in your work with behavior therapy is, I have tons of kids with school refusal. And I know anyone that's listened to my podcast more than once has heard me say this because it's literally all of like my private work. It's been, and even before I was doing it privately, I was, I was doing it for the school districts. And the part of the behavioral therapy was having clear uh, rewards, expectations, and consequences of the home. And the, the big thing being really around electronics usage. So kids are generally going to hate me because I'm usually coming into the home to kind of look at things and go, well, this is, in my mind, having a phone, having the access to these things is a big level of responsibility. We're assuming that this young person can manage um, having access to these things independently without it impacting their life. So I then step back and ask the parents, what is he doing to show you he's responsible enough to handle access to all those things? Usually it's nothing or not much. I said, Mm -hmm. okay, what then do you need to do in the home? And what do you need to see from him so that he showed you like what behavior would you need to see to demonstrate that your child is responsible enough to have access to PS4 uh, cell phone. What, what would you need to see that they could have access to it um, without it being cut off at night, right? That they can manage their own bedtime. All of these lists of questions, essentially restructuring how, and I hate to say it because it's just a big motivator for a lot of the kids I work with, but is access to electronics. Mm-hmm. So like reconstructing the whole thing to get a different desired behavioral outcome, which is generally going to school. Uh, but beyond that too, it's like getting chores done. It's um, doing anything school related really, <laughs> but it's those basic child expectations, right? This kind of developmentally appropriate ones, chores to a certain level, depending on the age of the kid. Now I work with mostly adolescents or parents of adolescents. So it's, you know, laundry, um, cleaning room, uh, maybe doing some backyard work, or if that's relevant, um, cleaning a bathroom, things of that nature, taking care of a dog. 
um, and also meeting school expectations, but of attaching those two. So I, I mean, I've really been in that window, but I'm curious that, I mean, obviously that's not the only window of behavioral therapy to work within. I'm curious, what's a theme you're seeing in your practice in terms of uh, providing behavioral therapy? I know you mentioned working in ABA and even with kids on the spectrum. So I know that could look maybe a little bit different of where I'm kind of honing in on, but could also have some similarities. But yeah, what are, what are some of the things you're seeing currently in your work with behavioral therapy? Yeah, I would say even so, so kids who are on the spectrum um, and kids who are sort of just having these um, other behavioral issues, um, uh, I, I think there's a lot. Uh, from from a, a behavioral standpoint, there's a lot that's in common. Um, so as far as what principles to apply and kind of how to do it um, works. Um, so like you're saying, you know, rewards um, and, uh, you know, having systems in place, finding your child's motivation, um, those work whether your kid is or isn't on the spectrum. Um, I would say some of the issues that, that I'm seeing um, are kind of around, I would guess, general compliance, um, you know, which uh, there's different schools of thought on compliance. Right. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, I would say compliance, chores, um, managing homework. Um, you know, I, I have kids who they just don't turn stuff in or mm -hmm. they just don't do assignments or, um, you know, they're things like that. Um, what else am I seeing? I'm trying to think of some uh, specific stuff. A lot of bedtime issues um, mm. that sleeping seems, I, and, and there's definitely stuff that's COVID related um, because there's just a general air of instability. I think kids are, are kind of picking up on that and, and they're having a hard time sleeping or being away from their, their parents. Um, so, but, but there's, you know, that's something that I've seen for a long time anyway, is just general sleep hygiene issues. Yes. Um, that's a big one. And, and parents really struggle with that. Um, I, for, for sleep issues, I always have parents check out medical stuff, you know, go see a sleep, sleep specialist if you need to, right. um, check their sugar intake, check, you know, other environmental things. What are they eating? How long are they eating before they go to bed? Yep. <laughs> um, is it liquid intake or, you know, stuff like that? Like, is it nightmares? Is it mm -hmm. uh, whatever it is? So, so sleep is a really big one that I see. Um, compliance is probably the other second, second big one, um, followed by like chores and homework. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious for you too, because like normally I'm either approaching it one of two ways. Either I'm working with the parents about their teen or I'm working with both simultaneously. Um, not mm -hmm. necessarily like family work, but I see the kid individually and I see the parents separately work with the kid to just develop some overall coping skills for anxiety and or depression. Because generally, I mean, with the themes I'm working within, if you think of the spectrum of behavior and if we put it on like a fight or flight kind of stress response, I'm on the flight end, right? I got it and the freeze end of things where my kids are avoiding, right? Their avoidance versus mm -hmm. they're not actively, you know, disruptive or blowing up. Although I've worked on that spectrum before too, but now I've been on this more avoidance uh, side. But I was gonna say a big, you know, a big misconception or I think expectation I have to be very clear about with, with parents is that we have to run with the assumption that the kid is not invested in things changing. Mm -hmm. that you're invested as the parent in things changing. So if you're the one that's invested in their behavioral change, it means a lot of the work is going to involve the parent. And, mm -hmm. it's, it's, and it's, it's tricky to get that buy-in because they're, well, they're the ones with the behavior. It's like, well, this is where we bring in that kind of stereotypical, not stereotypical, but like, you know, that typical behavioral training Then we're going to train them. So mm -hmm. certain things I bring up are like, I play devil's advocate of just asking parents sometimes like, why should they change? Why should they do anything differently? What motivation have, 
as I see it, their life is great. <laughs> well, everything it's, they're doing is working. It's working for them. They're golden. Yeah. Uh, so I go to the, a few kind of key points I go up to is who is suffering the consequence to your child's behavior? Is it your child or is it you? Because right now as it stands, it appears to be the parent. And I, like, I'll reflect that to them. You're the one that's stressed out of this, right? You're the one cleaning up their mess, whether, whether metaphorical or, or actual, you know, literal mess. Mm-hmm. So when they do behavior they, that you don't like, <laughs> that is the mm-hmm. undesired behavior, and this goes to our very basic behavioral training, right? What is the, then the consequence so that they feel uncomfortable because of that behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Now they feel the consequence of it. And conversely, when they do something you want to see, and maybe they don't actually want to do, how are you going to pair or reinforce something that is then desirable to them so that we can kind of condition that new behavior? So that, that's, a, that's a point where I usually start with with them is who's feeling the consequences right now? Because mm-hmm. I, I recognize if I come in too early saying, we need to do all these shifts, it's like, we got to start with that buy-in, of course, right? Oh, totally. Um, so I'm curious with you, when doing this work, are you seeing that same theme of <laughs> and working with it or you know, ways that you kind of um, support parents in taking on some of these behavioral shaping techniques uh, because the expectation might be that the therapist is there to wave the wand and you know, Fix do, the the kid. Whole, do the whole Mary Poppins thing with the kids. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's a really common thing. I think... Part of it is that um, I, I think on some level, a lot of parents do recognize where behaviors come from. Right. I, I don't know that it's um, always a huge surprise right. that a lot of the responsibility falls on them as the adult in the relationship and also um, how behaviors get formed, you know, that like, well, you know, yeah, we never actually tell him not to do that. Or, well, every time he does do that, yeah, I give in, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so much easier. Right. And so, so I think some of it is, is managing parental shame too. Yes. Um, and I'm very careful not to blame or, or have it even come across like it's somebody's fault right um it's you know just kind of this is where we're at right let you know and and here's here's how to move forward but let's also just recognize where we are um and and i do talk a lot about um extinction bursts Mm -hmm. um so uh i'll tell a parent it's probably gonna get a lot worse before it gets better Um, because of that thing like you were saying you know they, the child doesn't see anything wrong with the situation. Mm-hmm. They're living their life and they're getting what they want for the most part. You know, they don't really necessarily mind that they're having tantrums. It doesn't feel good. I'm not saying they like having tantrums, but um, if it works, it works. So they'll just keep doing what works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tell parents things like that where, you know, they've had this going for a long time. They, they really recognize how powerful their strategies already are. For sure. um, and anytime anybody comes in to make that different, basically what the response is going to be is they're just going to try harder. Like, right. well, screaming usually worked. It's not working right now. Maybe I need to scream louder yes. or longer. <laughs> this, re- this reminds me of grad school, right? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That Dr. Shuhu's. Uh, 180 turn. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 So, so I say, you know, like this is kind of what to expect. Right. And it's going to be really um, scary. It's going to make you want to stop. It's going to make you want to go back into the old habits. But, you know, if you know that this is how it's going to go, I'm hoping that gives you a little bit more resolve in those tough moments, you know, knowing that this is part of the process. You're not doing anything wrong. Nothing in the system is going wrong. This is actually how it's supposed to go. Um, You know, kind of set them up for that so that um, they can shore up, you know, as much as they need to. and, And hopefully that helps with some of the consistency. 
Um, yeah, so so definitely I always talk about Extinction Burst right away <laughs> yes. um, because it can just be so scary, I think, um, to see, you know, how hard their kid's going to fight against change. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And I like the point you brought up too about the shame because to me, you know, when I mentioned just a bit ago saying not coming in with the solutions right away, you really have to start with the parent and get the buy-in. And I think a big part of that is addressing the shame and the judgment. Um, Not even a big part of it. To me, it's the integral part of it. Like that's how you're building the trust with the parent is they know you're not there to judge them or say blame. You're just like this scientifically, this is kind of how things are happening from a, a social science point of view. And my big win as a, a, ther- a therapist for parents is when I'm able to hear the parent say, I know when I give in, it doesn't help. And then I create that space. So we do as therapists to say, Hey, I'm not blaming you for it. You know, I get why you do it. Mm-hmm. Anyone in your position would probably do the same thing. You're exhausted. The kid is annoying you right now. <laughs> You're like, just shut up kid. Here you go. Right. And I even break it down to just like the basic human experience of we as humans and whether it be with parenting or anything else, the short term gratification is usually what we go to first because it's easier to access for that immediate Mm -hmm. relief. Right. But the long-term consequences are greater. So apply this to parenting, apply this to your health, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. taking the long road, right? Of I'm going to face the stressors now for a, a long, for the long-term better outcome. That is a hard road, whether it be, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're struggling with. So, yeah. you know, and I kind of normalize that for parents. It's like, yeah, I mean, mo- most parents would be doing the exact same thing, but now that you recognize it, what do you want to do about it? Because in my best interest for you, parent, is that, you no longer feel the consequences of your child's behavior to this extent. Will you feel them to a certain degree? Absolutely. They're your kids. But we don't want your kid to feel none of it, right? Because <laughs> right. it won't make them uncomfortable enough to work towards some growth. Yeah, um, they're still and, involved, right? right. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So I, I think addressing the shame is such a huge piece because sometimes in, you know, you did ABA, I did TBS, which for people listening means therapeutic behavioral services and it's in-home behavioral work is sometimes the way it's set up depending on an organization uh, with some of these behavioral therapies is it goes right to this like to the science of the behavioral shift and it goes right past ever like aligning and holding space for the parent Mm-hmm. to to kind of work through their guilt and shame and also just anxiety about changes as well but it's kind of like all right we're going straight to solutions and people aren't always ready for solutions right away or like for mm-hmm. new, new interventions. So I'm glad you brought up that shame piece because to me, it's such a big piece. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things I, I, I encounter a lot with parents too is um, a lot of their own stuff that gets brought up that they didn't anticipate in becoming a parent. Right. You know, they didn't, their anxiety was manageable in one particular context. But having a child pushed, you know, all kinds of buttons all of a sudden that they didn't know and or, um, you know, they they had their anger kind of under control and worked out in this other context, but you bring in kids and sleep deprivation and, right. you know, all kinds of stuff that, well, there it all is again. And so there's, there's some of that too that's, um, I think, catches parents off guard is you know, I, I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, like this, this would be so hard, or I didn't know that, um, you know, my anxiety would get this bad uh, with, with my kid, or like, why, why do they get under my skin so badly? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, or it starts to trigger all of those maybe negative, you know, thought patterns that they used to have that they thought they had worked through of, you know, starting to identify with, I'm a bad parent, I'm a Mm -hmm. bad person because this isn't going well, you know, and sort of working through that other stuff. Like you're saying that like straight solution oriented behavior therapy and protocols doesn't really have room for Mm -hmm. um, that. Both of them can, can be done alongside each other, but 
I think there does need to be space for all that stuff that, that comes up um, with, with the parent as an individual, as a person outside sure. of parenthood yep. that, yeah, like can really affect the whole behavior process too. You know, if they're second guessing themselves, if they're feeling like a failure through the whole thing um, and, and working into a depression where their anxiety is completely flared up, you know, that affects everything with their child as well and their ability to be consistent with a behavior protocol or, you know, something like that. So, so I think it's really, really important to, to touch on all that stuff and, and name it for the parent. Like, yeah. of course, it's coming up for you. Of course, that's pushing that button. You know, gosh, that sucks that you're feeling that way. Yeah. Um, and it's making it so much harder. I, I hear that, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, and broadly, making failure safe for not just the kids, but for the parents. So mm -hmm. if they're getting ready to try something and acknowledging too, if, if you've gone through all that process and then they're to the point of saying, okay, now I am ready to, to try a change in the home. You know, oftentimes I'll just say to them, Hey, and guess what? If you decide to give in, I'm not going to come back and judge you next week. I'm going to sit down and say, it's okay. It is what it is. What mm -hmm. do you want to do? What do you want to do this week? Mm -hmm. yeah. It's your life, or, right? Like, well, how should me, we try again? Yeah. Yeah. What, um, you know, what came up for you? Why you didn't try it? Was it fear of the response or was it that you didn't really like the idea in the first place? And that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that, but of really making anything they go through. Okay. Similar. To, I mean, this is kind of therapeutic across the board, right? We talk about with, with the grief work. It's like, if you feel sad and you thought you weren't supposed to feel sad three years later, five years later, I'm going to sit and say, that's okay. I mean, part of grief like mm -hmm. i'm not going to sit here and tell you you should be over it right i'm not going right. to tell you as a parent you should have done something differently i'm not going to say that just say it is what it is mm -hmm. it yeah is we don't need to add a layer right. of, of shame to that like yeah. let's just let's take it as it is and yeah. and figure out what the next step is exactly yeah well i think that was a good snapshot of behavioral work and i love talking about it because you know i do it do a lot more of it than I, than anything else right now, especially just mm -hmm. around just getting that structure in the home and, and not to, we didn't even talk about the difficulties of like COVID throwing that structure off for people. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I mean, you're in Tennessee now, but we also had the smoke uh, right, from the fires. Fire. So there was like no going outside, no going to anywhere else. Like it was literally just years inside and you're trying to manage your kids and like that's a whole other thing that is I'll, what I'll briefly say about that from what I've been kind of saying to parents is be easy on yourself lower your expectations for yourself right now for how good things are going to be because there's so many limitations on us right now like not only was it COVID but then we added the fires to it. it's like I know you'd love for it to go well, and maybe here's, here's partly underlying grief, right? A lot of grieving some expectations of what this year was supposed to be, what yeah. the kids are supposed to be getting out of school. I'm just kind of calling, saying it out loud what it is. Like, there's no way this year for you, you with your kids and the school experience is going to be a 10 out of 10 because of all of these limitations. Yeah. But let's just see how, if it's at a three, let's just see if it's possible to get to a four or a five, mm -hmm. right? But I'm kind of like reimagining what all of it is supposed to look like right now, which I think is a perfect segue into the last thing, which is like the existential work. Now, when you mentioned that, the first thing, and this is kind of generic, that came to my mind was like quarter life crises, midlife crises, etc. Mm -hmm. But I was like, why are we here? But anyways, I want to give you some space to just kind of talk about what, what that means for you and your work. And like how you really even got into it. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the idea of, you know, existential humanistic kind of therapy really fit in my personal experience with grief. Um, and also the work that I do with people, um, because death is so tightly involved with our existence mm -hmm. right um so um a lot of what 
um, existential like philosophers might say is that um, you know there's there's a huge and, and I, I just wrote about this recently of um, death anxiety as sort of a an underlying just driving force in the way that we live our lives most mm -hmm. people are absolutely afraid of dying um, and I you know rightfully so on some <laughs> level right. um you know we're we're not all out there just trying to die um <laughs> right <laughs> but you know I, well not everyone but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but i would say generally i mean we we have a very strong drive to keep ourselves alive mm -hmm. um and and that can take a lot of forms i mean physically we we keep ourselves out of harm's way um as best we can um we do it emotionally with with the relationships that we have, um, the the type of um, occupations we have, all of that stuff. Those are those are all forms of of self uh, protection and, and things like that, and um, not wanting to experience failure, which is a form of death. Um, and so there's a lot of the way that we go about our life where we construct it to keep ourselves safe. Um, and so. I've done a lot of my own work on, on getting myself to a place where I can, I can just anticipate that things are going to go sideways at some point. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how it's going to go sideways. Mm -hmm. Um, but just knowing the fact that it will, or that it's going to be different in some mm -hmm. way. Um, I, keeping that in mind um, for, for as much as I can, um, depending on the day, everything, you know, mm -hmm. it's always different a little bit, but, but kind of coming from a place of that, that, um, that death is always there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm using death kind of in a more abstract term that right. change, failure, um, unpredictability, all of that stuff, that's always there. Um, right. And so, so making my decisions from that place, uh, I think has really helped in general lower a lot of my own personal anxiety, um, giving me a lot more room to kind of really truly experience um, what's in front of me and, and the people that I interact with and, and the way that I go about my life. And so um, it, it's a huge, it's a huge undertaking. Um, and, and so when I'm working with clients who are kind of in that, um, I, I try to help them come to a, a realization that life is really messy mm -hmm. and that's kind of okay. Um, and to get to a place where they can anticipate things and start recognizing patterns in their own life as a way to reduce all of that stress, just general an anticipation that mm -hmm. things are going to be changing all the time. Um, really kind of takes the air out of you know that it takes the pressure out um, right people so um yeah so sometimes that shows up as a quarter life crisis sometimes yeah. that shows up as a midlife crisis you know oh my god i'm 50 and what's going on so there are markers where that's that can be kind of consistent that people realize they need to sort of reevaluate um their entire value system or the way that they see the world, like realizing I've been wearing a certain set of lenses and right. that's colored everything and something changed. And now even the, the possibility that there's a different set of lenses you can wear can be really off-putting. Um, and they don't know what to do with that information. You know, it's, it's, it's very scary. Yeah. So, so that's kind of some of the, the basis of like doing existential work with somebody. Um, yeah, it, it is by nature sort of yeah. abstract and, and strange. And, um, but yeah, it's just, it's sort of a process of questioning. Right. It made me think of a few things as you said it. Um, one, of the, one of the phrases it made me think of is control is an illusion. Right? Mm -hmm. And this idea of, of being able to hold, un hold death, uh, the idea of it, or hold unpredictability or kind of the nature of chaos in um or the potential of chaos and i don't mean that like i mean that very abstractly mm -hmm. i just like think the world can be so unpredictable life can be so unpredictable and i think when we're not in touch with that that anticipating things can go 
awry at any time. When we're not in touch with that, I think the benefit of it is it keeps us in this nice little comfortable place. And we, you know, we aim to control our environment to stay that way, to keep it as predictable as possible. Mm-hmm. I think the potential downside to that, which was what I was kind of gathering from you is, but then when that thing comes, you weren't ready for it. And it could really shatter your world because maybe you were thinking that it was all within your control when in mm-hmm. actuality it never was. Um, right. Yeah. So I just to, to like jump in there too, that like another, from a philosophical standpoint, um, what, what falls into the existential kind of thinking is the absurdity of life, Mm -hmm. um, and the randomness of Mm -hmm. life that, uh, sort of getting to a point where you're okay with that. Um, that I think a lot of times, um, just because of the, the, you know, type of creature that we are, we attach meaning to so many things. Right. Um, and sometimes there just isn't any. It is just a random thing that happened as part of life. Um, that uh, the meaning then also falls on to the individual person to make. Right. Um, so, so it's a weird place to be, like, in that idea of control, control in a way is the the meaning that you place on something yeah you you can kind of gain control over something um by the decision that you make Mm -hmm. you know of well i'm i'm attaching meaning to that well you don't have to Um, right that's actually a choice that you've made (laughs) um, to, to do so um and you know even just being in that line of thinking is is pretty unfamiliar um to a lot of people and um I also want to like note that the existential mode of being is not the only way of being. It's, right. it's just, uh, you know, there's definitely flaws in the system. Right. Um, and, and it's, you know, um, but it's a way to kind of come to terms with certain things too, of, For sure. of you know, that, that idea of control and, and the illusion of having it or not having it. Yep. Um, and, and all of the meaning making that we, we do, um, when not everything has a meaning. Yeah. That, and that's another point too I want to touch on for anyone that's listening is, you know, when I've done, I've done some of this work myself, I think stumbled into it and I'll give a quick example of that. Um, but it's because the person was like needing it. You know what I mean? They came to mm-hmm. me really in this place where like we were talking about earlier, there's, there's no like, tangible diagnosis or like mental health disorder they're struggling with they're just in this kind of place of of kind of floating around almost and how we came to kind of do this existential work in meaning making was the metaphor I started using was this blueprint like I imagined a blueprint on a table and like this guy is an architect kind of working through the blueprint okay I've I worked, I finished that part of this project and that part, and he got to the end of it and there was no more blueprint left. And he felt like lost and empty. And since he felt lost and empty, he, he started attaching to this identity of himself as being this like useless individual because now the blueprint was over. And, and we kind of just talked about where did that blueprint come from? And, you know, the, the easiest part is, you know, it comes from family values, societal values, like everything was very structured. And then he got to a certain point where it's like, well, you, for, for him, and even for actually, I did this with several clients and they were all roughly, I'd say you could kind of say they were in that midlife crisis range, maybe semi midlife. But if you did all these things that you thought would bring you this different feeling and now you're at the end of that road and it's not, so where do you want to go from here? You know, what's the meaning you want to make of that process? What's the meaning that you want to make of your life going forward? Do you want to make a meaning of it? Or do you just want to just keep going? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that answer differed too, right? Of like some people going, I'm going to reinvent myself and like get away from all of this, this blueprint. Other people going, I think I'm just okay with accepting that it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Maybe this is just what life is, where I'm at today. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, it's definitely a, a thought process restructuring. Yeah. 
Um, and we were, we were talking about like, you know, not having judgment on things um, earlier. And I think that's a, a big part of the, the kind of existential stuff that I do with clients too, is, is getting, you know, into, into that mode of um, working through your stuff, you know, without judgment mm -hmm. um, as much as you can um, and, and being okay with the decisions that you make mm -hmm. um, and, or, or deciding to not be okay with them. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but, you know, having that not be um, a marker of your identity, um, like creating some, some separation between, you know, who, who you are versus, you know, the, the things that are happening in your life and, and maybe some of the, the um, behaviors that you do that you're trying to change or whatever. But, um, but that identity piece, uh, I think is what, what gets in the way when, when people are going through this existential stuff is because they are recalibrating that identity. And it's, it can be pretty painful and it can be really uh, like a big shock to the system. For sure. Um, and so taking a step back and sort of looking at what that identity is, where does that come from? You know, like you're saying, where does that blueprint come from? Yep. Um, and, and working through all of that, because a lot of times we don't really think about that stuff. And I think that's where some of the, that shock comes from. We've never actually thought about this. Exactly. Um, and for, for, that's for various reasons, right? Like sometimes it's a luxury to be able to think about that stuff. Yes. Um, you're, in, you're in survival mode. You know, I'm not, I'm not thinking about any of this other stuff. I do need to make sure I'm staying alive, right? Yeah, and, exactly. Um, getting day to day. So, so I think sometimes that's also where the shock comes from. If, if you're, if you're, if you've been living your life one way and then all of a sudden you do have room or, or that's been forced upon you to have to think about these things all of a sudden. Um, and, and that's kind of what throws people out of, out of whack, which yeah, back to, you know, like it's not a diagnosable thing. Yeah. Of course, that's how you're going to respond when something like that happens when your life turns upside down or, or whatever sure. it is, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I love the, uh, I love how many places, I think in general, just even in this conversation of how many places we've gone, but that there was, you know, from grief to behavioral therapy to existential, but I've also seen these similar threads as therapists that we kind of continue to try to hold of like creating that non-judgmental space, trying to help people just feel okay with their existence, whatever exists in their life. Um, and the meaning making behind all of it, right? We, when we talk about mm -hmm. the meaning making with grief, the meaning making, you know, parents have as parents, right? What do they make of the situation or what, what meaning are they attributing to, to their kids' struggles and to themselves? And then mm -hmm. even this last part, right, of the existential, like a lot of it just about meaning making or lack thereof, or just what do you, you know, how do I want to recalibrate my thinking or, or life so ways that fits me? And maybe I don't, I mean, mm -hmm. but now, but now I'm just aware of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of uh, just opening up that awareness of, um, I think, awareness of, of where things are, um, you know, in a lot of cases, how they got there, but then also the awareness of choice, yeah. um, which I think is another kind of freaky thing for people is recognizing choice and then the responsibility within that. Um, when, when you accept that you have choices and that you are making choices and committing to them, mm -hmm. um, that's a huge responsibility and that's its own weight on people, you for know? Sure. Um, that, that ties into a lot of that stuff too, that, um, yeah, I, I, even with the, within the illusion of control, <laughs> you know, I do have choice. I do right. create my, my existence. Um, uh, so yeah. And there's, there's a lot of weight to that, that, um, again, people might not have realized or even thought about how choice plays into their life mm -hmm. um, that can, can be a big upheaval in itself. Yeah. It will, to your point too, is to acknowledge that I have choice in this, in this situation acknowledges then there's a responsibility, you know, behind mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And if I acknowledge I have the choice here to do something, um, 
now that responsibility is in front of me. And what does that bring up for me as well, right? The stress or anxiety of, can I handle this responsibility? Or what does this responsibility say about my identity? Mm -hmm. Right. And then does the shame, blame, guilt kind of enter the window? And obviously right now where my mind's going is the parent work I've done, right? Because mm -hmm. to acknowledge I have a choice in this manner or a different choice that I could um, choose, <laughs> then the responsibility comes in, right? And then to have the responsibility or to hold that, um, mm -hmm. I usually see the flood of those um, those emotions of guilt and shame, which then are also hard hard sometimes for the, the parents to hold. Mm -hmm. um, Megan, I, I'm going to you know, we're over an hour here. I, I could talk to you for days, uh, especially because we haven't talked for days. I know. <laughs> you know, I, I've always learned so much from you from, uh, from our time in grad school. So this was a pleasure to, uh, to check up on the work you're doing. And of course it sounds like fabulous work. And I think you did such, you did such a great service to anyone that's listening, um, to cover three very completely different uh, windows uh, of, of treatment or just phases of life. So I can imagine any listener thinking about like, I've gone through that with grief or like, wow, that resonates with me or with the parenting stuff or even with the ex existential uh, aspects of your work. I'm going to keep you on after, but I'm going to stop the recording here. But once again, thank you for being on uh, Therapy's podcast. I truly appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to the listeners next time. All right. Thanks. Thank you.